Dear Heavenly Father, again, we thank you for your great mercies to us. And uh, we are grateful that you are such a loving God. And as we have the opportunity now to consider more of your will and way, uh, we looked at some uh, disturbing thoughts regarding ourselves yesterday. But today, Lord, we are looking forward to uh, climbing out of that pit and coming to see things that are just so beautiful. And Lord, it is beyond my capacity to describe, for it is divine, it's eternal. And so, Lord, I ask for you to be here in your Holy Spirit and to be our communicator. Uh, Lord, I ask for you to take these feeble uh, English human words and by your Spirit bring um, uh, eternal truths that these words cannot convey to our hearts. And Lord, may we believe, I pray in Jesus' name, amen. Many individuals that I deal with at the Lifestyle Center and as I travel uh, many places and speak with individuals, I, I find that many individuals are carrying baggage. They're carrying lots of baggage with them. <clears throat> things have happened in the past. Uh, people have said things and done things. They have done things and said things themselves. Uh, they're holding on to guilt and shame and hurt and fear and all of these types of things. And, and it shackles their lives so that they can't be as productive as God would have them to be, but it also then contributes to much of their disease process, as Frank was just talking about in the last session, that nine-tenths of diseases have their foundation here in the mind. And, and again, I completely agree. It's not that the, the problem is all in the head. There's real physical disease that's going on. But the cause, the foundation of it is in the mind. <clears throat> and, uh, and, and a lot of that has to do with the baggage that we're carrying around. And so many individuals just have gone through life wanting to be free but not knowing how. And so we're going to talk about coming free, about letting go of that baggage and leaving it behind. And it happens right here. It happens right at the cross. We're told that the spotless Son of God hung upon the cross, his flesh lacerated with stripes, those hands so often reached out in blessing, nailed to the wooden bars, those feet so tireless on ministries of love spiked to that tree, that royal head pierced by the crown of thorns, those quivering lips shaped to the cry of woe, and all that he endured, the blood drops that flowed from his head, his hands, his feet, the agony that racked his frame, and the unutterable anguish that filled his soul at the hiding of his father's face. It speaks to each child of humanity, declaring, it is for thee that the Son of God consents to bear this burden of guilt. For thee he spoils the domain of death and opens the gates of paradise. He who stilled the angry waves and walked the foam-capped billows, who made devils tremble and disease flee, who opened blind eyes and called forth the dead to life, offers himself upon the cross as a sacrifice, and this from love to thee. He 
the sin bearer, endures the wrath of divine justice and for thy sake becomes sin itself. Now this is a concept that is just, uh, it's a little far beyond my ability to comprehend. This whole idea of Jesus, the spotless son of God, becoming sin itself. I had always had this picture of Jesus kind of like a Santa Claus model where, you know, Santa's got the big pack of presents that he carries around everywhere. Well, Jesus was, you know, taking this big pack of sin, your sin, mine, everybody's sin, and in this big pack, and he's carrying it with him here uh, up to the cross, and it's so heavy that it just crushes out his life. But there's a different connotation here with the wording in that he became sin itself. Well, if you think this is kind of a heretical statement, well, Paul says the same thing. 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us, that we might become the righteousness of God in him. Hmm. For he, the father, made him the son who knew no sin. He, He had a perfect life, right? To be sin for us. And to in in what way, what manner, what degree or whatever did did Jesus become sin? I don't know that I could describe that. I don't think that I really understand it myself fully. But I do know this that this verse gives us a comparison. That to the degree that Jesus became sin for us, He did so that in that same degree, you and I might become, right? The same being, be and become, right? We might become the righteousness of God in him. So let's go to the cross and let's see how this plays out. You see, coming up to the cross, there are two very distinct Uh, realities. There are two very distinct histories that come to the cross. One is the history of Jesus, the life of Jesus. And so what was the life of Jesus like coming up to the cross? Well, we understand that Jesus was perfect, right? For he made him who knew no sin. He knew no sin. He was perfect. Uh, If he was perfect, then that means that he had how much room for sin? Zero, right? He was so full of righteousness that he had zero room for sin in his life. And we're also told that not for himself but for others he lived and thought and prayed. His focus was always outward, not inward, right? It was always a selfless focus in his life. And so was Jesus personally hurt When others did things, they took the present and they threw it on the ground, they stomped on it and they slammed the door. Did he take it personally? No, because he was the UPS delivery guy. He was the delivery guy of God's resources, of his love to those individuals. And he was coming to deliver that love to them. And he, if if that love was rejected, it wasn't his, it was his father's. He didn't take it personally. Was he hurt? Yes, he was. He was hurt, but he didn't hurt for himself. He hurt for them, right? Because he came to bring life. He came to bring love. He came to bring restoration. 
And, and in doing so, he, he loved the ones that he came to bring that to. And if they rejected the gift, well, he hurt for them because they're, de- they're destroying themselves. But he didn't hurt for himself because it wasn't about him, right? So no, he wasn't personally hurt because to be personally hurt is to think about self, to focus on what it means to me. And his focus wasn't on himself. His focus was on on others, right? So he didn't think about himself. He thought of others. But Isaiah 53.3 tells us he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. But his sorrows and his grief, again, was not for himself. It was for them. And to the degree that he loved them was to the degree that he suffered for them. And he loved them infinitely more than we do, and so he suffered for them infinitely more than we do, right? So when his disciples abandoned him in John chapter 6, and he called himself the bread of life, and you must eat me to have life eternal, and all these disciples start grumbling and complaining and going away and so on, and he turns to the 12 and he says, are you going to leave too? Was Jesus, was he hurting for himself? Was that kind of a selfish hurt, you know, uh, that self-pity going on and, oh, I can't believe that they did that to me and, and so on? Did, was that his response? No, but was he hurt? Yeah, for them, that they were walking away from life. That bread of life that he was just telling them about, they're walking away from it and choosing death. Yes, he hurt, but not for himself. When Judas betrayed him with a kiss there in the garden, was, was he having some kind of self-pity going on because of this? No, he, he knew what Judas was going to go do. He already knew it before he ever became one of the disciples, you know? He, he was aware of the scripture. He was aware of what was going on. It wasn't a surprise to him when it happened. And, and, and oh, but he loved Judas. Oh, did he love Judas? Yes, he did. And, and so he hurt when Judas betrayed him, but he didn't hurt for himself. You see, you and I, our love is backwards, right? We, it's actually selfishness, but we call it love. But when this stuff happens to us, we hurt for us because of how it makes me feel and what it makes me look like. And how do I, you know, we look at it from a self standpoint, right? <clears throat> and when Peter denied him with cursing, well, Jesus knew he would. He already told him so. And, uh, <laughs> well, but he didn't hurt for himself. He hurt for Peter. He already told Peter, you know, Peter, the, the enemy's asked for you. But I have prayed for you. And when you come back, <laughs> right? When you come back, strengthen your brethren. Right? He already knew so Jesus, how, how often did he take anything personally? Never. So he, he, he was always in the situation where he did not take things personally throughout his entire life. Oh, what would that be like? You know, you got chaos and other things that are going on around you, but you never take it personally. Why? Because he was eating from his father's buffet all the time. And you can only take it personally if you eat from their buffet. And you take it and you believe it and you make it your own. But he, he said, I do not take what men have because I know what's in a man. Right? That's what he said. He says, I don't take from men because I know what's in a man. But he took from his father only. 
And, and because he did so, and, and God is love, then, then he, as he ate completely from his father's buffet, and he took from him all the time, he was the perfect example of love. You want to know what love is like? Well, you can read it in the law, but sometimes we scratch our heads wondering what that looks like in real example. Well, Jesus' life was real example of what that looked like. And he responded perfectly to everything everybody ever said or did to him. Not that, his life, not that everything that happened to him was good, Mind you, we know that. But how he responded to everything that happened to him was good. It was perfect. And he had good ripples. What do I mean? Well, you know, you get a stone and you throw it in the water. The effect is not just the stone going in the water. The effect is, is now the ripples going out from there. There is, a, there is a cause and effect consequence that spreads from that area. There's an influence that happens from there. And if you have a big enough stone for whatever pond that you're in, those ripples will go all the way through the, uh, through the pond to all of the edges, right? It will eventually influence the whole thing. And, and Jesus was not just the pebble, he was the rock, right? He was the rock of ages. And that stone thrown into the water of, of God's creation and in the universe, the ripples of the effect of Jesus' life have gone throughout all time and all space and have affected not just humanity on this earth, but also the angels and other created beings that God has made throughout all of the creation of the universe. It is all affected by the life of Jesus, and not just in Jesus' time, but those ripples come forward in time to you and I now a day, and we are benefited by those ripples today, but it went back in time as well, and it benefited Adam and Eve and, and so on, and those that were before the time of Christ. Throughout all time and space, those ripples have been there. And a, and a, and a cool thing about ripples, when they're good ripples, you can never get them back. Right? You can't stop them. You can't, you try to stop them and they, you just create more ripples and they keep going and, and so on. And, and when they're good ripples, that's a good thing, <laughs> right? And, and Jesus had power. He had power to overcome. Not that it was his power intrinsically, but he trusted in his father and in trusting in his father and taking from his father's goods, he had power to overcome sin, and that was the example and the living example of his life from beginning to end. He was sinless. And because of this, Jesus comes to the cross with no baggage. No baggage. None whatsoever. We must now consider another reality, another experience coming up to the cross, and that is the experience of you and I. You see, Jesus was fully God and he was fully man and he did both perfectly. You and I are fully man. We're none of God. <laughs> and we don't do the man part very well, right? <clears throat> and if you want to have an accurate description of what you and I are like, then we just take the life of Jesus and we apply this book called a thesaurus and we find the antonym section and everything that correctly describes the character of Jesus, you just find the antonym of that and you will find the correct description of you and I. Jesus was sinless. He was perfect. That means that we are 
sinful. That's right. Now, sinful implies that we are what of sin? Full of sin. So we're so full of sin that there's no room left for any righteousness. Just like Jesus was so full of righteousness, there was no room left for any sin. The complete opposite, right? Now, Jesus was never personally hurt. What about you and I? How often do we take it personally? All the time. Every time we take it personally, right? Just the opposite of what Jesus was. Jesus was loving, but what is our love? That's selfishness, right? And so his love was real love, but our love is selfishness. <clears throat> and, and Jesus responded perfectly to everything that happened to him. What about us? Did we, do we respond perfectly? No. And so we end up being the ones that hurt others, right? We end up being the perpetrator in, in many cases of saying the wrong things, doing the wrong things, and so on, and, and being that, uh, that initiating factor of, of hurt in somebody else's life, right? And, and not only that, but we're the victim, the unwilling victim of what others have said and done, and, and uh, along with victimhood comes the, the thought processes and the patterns that go along with it. A, a victim thinks a particular way. And there's a lot of destruction in that type of thinking associated with being a victim. And, and, and because of all of this, we have bad ripples. <laughs> now, Jesus had perfect ripples. We have bad ripples. If you ever want to know if you have bad ripples, just have children. <laughs> right? I, I, I know. We have a few. <laughs> right? Um, and, and it took me a few, I'm a slow learner in and, and a number of different ways, right? And people kept asking us, well, do you know how that happens? You know, because we had one and then we had two and then we had three and then we had four and then we had five and then we had six and, you know. And uh, anyways, but, um, you know, I, I, in another way I was a slow learner and that is that, that uh, I used to get really frustrated at my children because they had all of these character defects and it was just not working well and they were not representing daddy very well and so on and so forth. And, and I, I was frustrated with them up one side and down the other and one day... It struck me. They are me. And that's why I'm so frustrated. Right? Right? That's why I'm so frustrated. Because I see myself in them. Right? They get it rightfully. Right? They get it rightfully. Because they're mine. Right? And, and, and so you see that influence, that effect going on to the next generation and the next generation. And, and not just that, but people that you come into contact with and the influence that you have over them. Oh, my, I shudder to think what heaven's record looks like um, when, when I consider some of the stuff that I have been involved in in my life and how I've influenced others to get involved in a lot of this stuff too. Because I can never go back and undo having done that, right? I can't. You, you can't get the ripples and pull them back in. You can't. Once they go, they go, right? <clears throat> and we find in our humanity that we have a powerlessness. 
We are incapable of overcoming sin. Incapable. And so every time we fall to it because we don't have power to overcome. And with this, you and I have baggage. Here's the baggage that we have, and this is the baggage that we bring to the cross. Now, we are told again in 2 Corinthians 5.21, for he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. And so here... In this experience, uh, in the life of Jesus from birth until his death, and in a special way from the, the, the Last Supper through the Garden of Gethsemane and his trial and onto the cross until his death, Jesus now then becomes my sin for me. He becomes my sin for me. Not that he gives into it, not that he himself is, is guilty of it, not that he is himself is participating in it, but in this way that the Father makes him to be sin for me, he becomes my sin for me, right? And, and you see, our history, our past is very interesting because it tends to direct our future. You ever notice that? that because of the experiences that we've had in the past, the things that have happened to us, the ways that we've responded, the, 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 the habits of, of life, that the future tends to be shaped very much according to that direction. So individuals who grew up in alcoholic homes many times grow up to be alcoholics, and those that grow up in abusive situations end up becoming abusers later and so on. And even though they hated the fact that that happened to them and they vow that they will never do that, that, many of them end up that way anyways. Because that past, that, past, that history, uh, in my mind, is kind of like the gun barrel. What's the purpose of a gun barrel? Yeah, it's to direct the movement of the bullet. Otherwise, you can get the bullet, throw it in the middle of a fire, and everybody stand around and see which way it's going to go. Nobody knows, right? Nobody knows which way it's going to go when the thing finally goes off, but you throw it in a gun barrel... You know exactly where it's going, right? You, can, you, you know that you can stand many, many, many places and you know you're not in danger when that thing goes off. But if you stand right in front of it, you know there's lots of danger, right? Well, the past is like the gun barrel. And, and the movement of our lives in the future is determined on, based upon what has happened in the past in that gun barrel. And, and, and our propensity, our momentum is in that direction. That's humanity. That's the, exa- that's the experience that we have in, in this humanity. And so what Jesus is seeking to do here on the cross, one of the things, I'm not saying all, we're just scratching the surface, one of the things that Jesus is seeking to do is to step into our gun barrel and to take it himself, right? To step into our gun barrel and to take it himself. So that when Jesus, our substitute, just like in the old sacrificial system, you bring the lamb to the, to the, to the temple, you lay your hand on the lamb, you confess your sin, and the sin is transferred from you to the lamb. Did the lamb do anything to deserve that sin? Absolutely not. It's innocent, completely innocent. And it pays the price 
for my sin. I deserve to go to the temple and have my neck slit and my blood to pour forth and for me to die because of that sin. But instead, it is transferred to the lamb and I slit the lamb's throat and it bleeds and dies in my place. And the sin is transferred from myself to the lamb, from the lamb to the sanctuary, from the sanctuary to the scapegoat, and then eventually the scapegoat pays for it all at the end, right? It's an example of how God's going to take care of this sin problem. And so here, like that lamb, Jesus here on the cross is the one who that sin is transferred to. So in a way... I can ask this question, and it's uncomfortable because we don't like to think of it this way. But on the cross, who was it that was sinful? When's the last time you were on the cross? On the cross... Who was it that was sinful? Jesus. Jesus. That's right. Not that he gave into it, not that he himself was guilty of it or anything like that. For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us. So that be component of it, right, to be sin, he was our sin. Again, not that he was guilty of it, but like the lamb became your sin and suffered the, the penalty, Jesus became our sin and suffers the penalty. So, so he becomes responsible for my sin. And, and how much sin? All of it, right? The fullness of my sin. On the cross, who is it that's hurt personally? Jesus, that's right. On the cross, who is it that's selfish? Jesus, right? Again, not that he participates in it and, and so on, but who, on the cross, who's the perpetrator? Jesus. And the unwilling victim? Jesus. The one that has bad ripples that you can never pull back? Jesus. How about the one that's powerless to overcome sin? Jesus, right? How about the one that's carrying the baggage? Jesus. All the baggage you and I come to the cross with, all of the experience that you and I come to the cross with, all of the sin, all of this stuff, the past and the history and so on and so forth, that is what Jesus becomes. But why? 2 Corinthians 5.21 For he made him who knew no sin to be sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God in him. That we might become the righteousness of God in him. So there's another aspect to the cross here that we must consider and, and, and that is what happens to to us in this process. So when we enter into the experience of the cross, then exactly the opposite of what happened to Jesus happens to us, right? 
Jesus goes from perfectly good to absolutely bad. We go from perfectly bad to absolutely good. You see, in the cross, Jesus steps into your gun barrel and my gun barrel, and he takes our past, he takes our history, he takes the experiences of life, he makes them his very own, and that deserves death. And so he dies the penalty that our sin deserves in himself. But in doing so, he nudges us off into his gun barrel. And his gun barrel deserves eternal life. His gun barrel deserves uh, glory and honor and praise and so on and so forth. His, his gun barrel is, is always aimed towards the target and it never misses the mark. And so Jesus nudges us off into his timeline, into his gun barrel, into his life so that we get everything his life deserves. We become responsible for the perfection of the life of Christ just as he makes himself responsible for our sin and the messing up. Isn't that beautiful? Oh, and so when we enter into this experience of the cross, who is it then that is perfect? It's me. That's right. Who, who is it that has no personal hurts? Me. Right? Who is it that, that is loving? Me. And has a perfect response to everything that has ever happened in life? Me. Who is it that has good ripples? Throughout all time and space. Me. Who is it that has power to overcome? Me. And who is it that has no baggage? Me. Yeah. Absolutely unfair exchange. Unfair exchange. Oh, yeah. Too good to be true. And so many of us will not accept the gift because we think it can't be. It's just too good to be true. Or we think it's such a big gift, there are such big strings attached to it, we're just not going to accept the gift. Right. Now what's the catch? Because we think God is like we are, and the bigger the gift, the bigger the strings. We think there's strings attached. Matthew 25, verse 40, Jesus says, Assuredly, I say to you, inasmuch as you did it to one of the least of these, my brethren, you did it to me. Let's dig a little bit deeper into this and see what it's like in living color. Um, <clears throat> because there's stuff that has happened to us and we've done things to others. If I do something to somebody else, I'm doing it to Jesus. If somebody else does it to me, they're doing it to Jesus, right? Uh, that's what this verse is saying. Uh, because Jesus enters into the experience of everyone. Everyone, because he took everyone's experience on the cross. Not only that, he intimately knows everyone and everything that everyone is going through. You cannot experience anything in life that God does not experience. You cannot feel anything in life that God does not feel. Right? He, he knows. And, and sometimes this is hard because I'm talking to individuals sometimes who have been raped and have, had, have gone through all sorts of re real hell in their lives. And, and, and they, they just don't see how God could understand. But what they don't understand is that God went through it too. 
and that in fact it had to get through God first before it got to them. And there's nothing that they can feel that God doesn't. And so when you and I hold on to the hurt feelings, guess what? We don't just hurt ourselves. We hurt him. When we hold on to the hurt feelings, does he feel the hurt feelings too? Yes, he does. He does. And so the longer we hold on to him, not only do we torture ourselves, we torture him too. Right? So on the cross, God offers this divine exchange of life for life, and it is made possible to us because of grace. It's divine favor. We cannot earn it. In fact, to even try to attempt to pay for it is like slapping him in the face. There's nothing that you and I can do, nothing that you and I have that can ever pay for this or deserve it. We come to the cross with how much righteousness? Zero completely full of sin, bad motives, and all of that kind of stuff, you and I cannot come to God, to Christ in the first place with a single good motive because we don't have anywhere within us to generate a good motive to come to God for. And so how does God get us? He gets us through wrong motives. We always come to Christ with wrong motives because we're coming to him with a life completely full of sin. And we eventually, as we enter into a life with Christ, we eventually come to hate the very motives that drew us to him in the first place. Because we came to him because of selfish purposes, selfish reasons. I want to be free from this living hell. Praise God, he does set us free from that living hell. He does, right? Um, but, but in this, it, it's by grace, it's by divine favor. There is nothing good in us that we can come and offer to God and say, okay, I'll give you this, you give me goodness, right? You give me your life and so on and so forth. No, all we can come to God is with a need. I need you, God. And that's it. But that's all it takes is a need because he knew we could not come to him with anything other than a need. Right. But just because grace offers that gift does not mean that everybody gets the gift. Because the it's offered to everyone, but it only becomes yours when it's accepted. And it's faith that accepts that gift. It, we're told, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whosoever believeth in him, right? Whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. That believing is faith. It is that believing, it is that faith that accepts the gift so that it becomes my own, so that it's my living reality. So <clears throat> let's, again, put some more flesh and blood on this thing. Let's say that you had gotten in an argument with somebody and, and uh, that argument got really heated and after a while, uh, you were the last man standing and somebody else was dead. And there's this big uh, whoops going on in your mind and you're thinking, well, I don't necessarily want to go to prison and, and I don't like the idea of what might happen there and I like my freedom and thank you very much. And so you figure out how to dispose of the remains and the evidence and so on and you get away with it. And so for several years, you know, you've been, nobody's found out, nobody knows that you did it, and so on and so forth. You're free, right? Well, your body's free, you're not in prison, but your mind, oh, 
my, you are, you are in prison. Everywhere you go, there you are. Right? And, and you know what you did, and the guilt's always following you, and you're wondering who's going to find out, when they're going to find out. There's fear, there's anxiety, there's all this kind of stuff that's chasing you around everywhere you go, and, and, and you can never really get away from it. And, 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 and so then today you find out about the cross, and you find out about this divine exchange, and that what Jesus is offering to you, he's offering to step into your timeline, your gun barrel, your history, your past, and to take the bullet for you. And in doing so, he's going to nudge you off into his timeline, into his gun barrel. He's going to give you everything that his life deserves. And when you believe the gift that he's there offering to you at the cross, you then end up with the perfection of the life of Christ, and he ends up being the murderer. Now, after you do so, who is not the murderer? You, me. <clears throat> Does it mean you forget what happened? No, it doesn't mean that you forget what happened. But the guilt and the shame and the hurt and the pain and everything associated with it goes because he takes it. It goes with him at the cross. Now, you come to Christ and you learn that, you know, confession is a whole part of this thing as well. And there's other people that have been hurting and wondering what's going on and so on and so forth. And you realize that, you know, truth is a good part of God's plan too. And, and, and so you, you confess to, you know, what happened and the authorities investigate and there's no statute of limitation on murder. So uh, you end up going to prison. Right? So you go to prison. Um, who's not guilty? You are not guilty. Hmm. So if you're not guilty and you're in prison, how free can you be? You can be free indeed. Your exact opposite situation that you were before. You were free in the body, but a slave in the mind. Now you're free in the mind, but a slave in the body. Right? Which one would you rather have? oh, I would rather be free from guilt and, and, and all of that kind of stuff and be locked up in prison because I could be like Paul and Silas singing, singing, singing hymns at midnight, being counted worthy to suffer for his name. Right? It, the cross sets you free. Free indeed. <clears throat> right? But it's not just from that side. Other individuals have been through life that's been uh, living hell. Uh, they've grown up and... And uh, we were foster parents uh, for a while, and, and uh, the, the second set of children that we, we got when we were foster parenting, we had them for a while. Oh, my, the neglect that was there. I, I mean, they were left for, for more than a day just sitting in their high chair, stuck in the high chair. You know, uh, you can imagine how dirty the diapers get and what they, you know, and not having food and so on and so forth because the parents were, were into drugs and not taking care of the children and, and they were beat and they were all of this kind of stuff. And, and there's this, this, this living hell that happens in this world. It's sad, but, but that's just part of it. And, you know, we, we grew up in families where we should be protected, but we're violated. And, and, and you know, and then you have marriages that are supposed to be for life and they end up being not for life and, and, and there's all sorts of stuff that, that, that happens and, and we come and we have this baggage and, and lots of stuff that happened to us and we were not asking for it and we didn't want it very much. Thank you. All right? 
But it was your past, and it happened to you. Oh. But remember, Jesus said, if they have done it unto the least of these, my brethren, they've done it unto me. They've done it unto me. So if you are one who has been abandoned, neglected, abused, uh, rejected, molested, uh, divorced, uh, whatever it might be, and, and you've been struggling with the bitterness and the resentment and the hurt and the, the, all of that stuff and the shame that goes along with it. And today you realize that Jesus is offering you on the cross. He's offering to allow you to, 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 well, to come into your life that he might take it all himself. And be the victim of all of those things that have happened to you. And in doing so, he's going to nudge you off into his timeline so that you might be the one that gets his life in exchange. And you believe. Faith takes hold of the gift and it becomes yours. Who now is not the one who is abused? Me. Who now is the one that was not molested? Me. Who is the one that was not abandoned? Me. Right? Because Jesus takes my place so that I can go free. And all of the bitterness and resentment and so on and so forth associated with those thoughts and, uh, and whatever of me being the victim, they go away at the cross because the cross sets me free. Uh, I'm going to have to skip that story too. <clears throat> Time will not permit so let me ask this question. Let's forget that there's anybody else in the world. It's just you and Jesus. Just you and Jesus. Nobody else. Before the cross, how many perpetrators are there? One. Who is it? It's me. On the cross or after the cross, how many perpetrators are there? One. Who is it? Jesus. All right. So, I want to make this point clear. If you are still the perpetrator, if you're still the one who said that thing, did that thing, responded the way that you did, and so on and so forth, and you have guilt associated with it, and you've been holding yourself, there's self-hatred and other things like that because of the addictions or the, the behaviors or the whatever it is. If you're still the perpetrator then you're living in an experience that is before the cross. Because when you come to the cross, Jesus becomes the perpetrator for you. And you go free. Right? You go free. And all of those feelings and hurt stuff and everything along with it go away too. The memory doesn't go away. You remember the stuff. But the hurt associated with it goes away because he heals the hurt. Last point here. Between Jesus and you before the cross, how many unwilling victims? One. Who is it? It's me. After the cross, between Jesus and you, how many unwilling victims? One. Who is it? Jesus. That's right. So if you are still the victim... 
If you're still the one that they said the thing did to, they did the thing to, they treated that way, and so on and so forth, and there's the resentment and the hurt and the bitterness and all of that kind of stuff that's just so hard to get rid of and take care of, then you're living in an experience that is before the cross. Because when you come to the cross, Jesus becomes the victim for you, and you go free. Mm. There is so much more power at the cross than we have understood. And there is so much more freedom that God has designed for us than we have thought of. And I cannot sufficiently help my patients to deal with the baggage that is causing so much chaos in their lives, including physical dysfunction, if I don't have the tool of the cross. Because it is where they must come to, to go free, right? They must come to this to go free. Now, how much of your sin did Jesus pay for? All of it. Does that mean everything you ever did? What about everything you would ever do? Yeah, that too. So does that mean that God knows the future? Absolutely. He said, your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they all were written the days fashioned for me, when as yet there were none of them. Absolutely, he knows the future. And when Jesus died on the cross, he died knowing everything that you and I would ever do, everybody throughout all of eternity that would ever sin. He paid for it all. He didn't miss a single sin. So that means that in the future, if anything comes up and you fall, did he know that already? Yeah, he knew it already. It's not a problem for him. He already paid the price for it. It's only a problem for us because now we discovered it's there. (laughs) We didn't know it, right? The revelation is for us, not for him. He knows already. So don't, when when a child is learning how to walk and it falls down, Is the parent going to slap the child around because it fell down? No. Right, it shouldn't, right? Unless they're demonic, right? And uh, and whatever. No, the, the parent's excited that the child's learning how to walk. The falling is not a problem. It's expected in the process of learning how to walk. It's the staying down that's the problem, Right? It's the staying down and not getting back up. If the child falls and then has a temper tantrum and then refuses to walk again, that's a problem. But if the child falls and then gets back up and falls and gets back up and falls and gets back up, that's not a problem. That's expected. The Bible tells us a righteous man falls seven times and seven times what? Gets back up. Jesus said, I tell you not seven times, but 70 times seven. How many times would you allow your child to fall in the process of learning to walk? As as much as it takes. That's right. Are we better than God? No. No. But sometimes we think he's the angry ogre that's looking at us and just seeking to zap us every time we fall and to knock us down and to keep us down and so on and so forth. No, he's a loving Heavenly Father. He, he knew everything that we would do. He paid the price for it already. Don't wallow in the sin. Get back up. 
Trust in his grace. Enter back into the experience of the cross. Bring that sin before him at the cross. He knew it was there already. Don't let it be something that separates you from him, him. And don't try to wallow in the sin and the hard feelings and all of that kind of stuff in order to try to pay for what you did. Because, all right, we Adventists are really good at penance. We are. Right, you know penance. You, know, you flog yourself and you do other things like that and you, you know, painful things and whatever and put hooks in the flesh and drag you around and carry the cross and do other things like that. I mean, there's that outward penance. We're really good at inward penance. Right, we sin and, you know, we've done the sin again and again and again and again and again and again and, you know, and we do it again and then we, we just beat ourselves up mentally and we, we hold on to the hurt feelings and we just wallow around in it and we just try to kind of like sandpaper ourselves with it enough until we feel like we've, you know, done it enough that now we can come back to God and ask him for forgiveness. It's, it's just a way of trying to save ourselves. It's, it's just a salvation by works, right? We're, we're trying to add to the salvation process by beating ourselves up because we think God would beat us up because of it. And so we're going to do part of the beating up process ourselves so that he doesn't have to beat us up so much. Oh, Lord, help us. <laughs> His grace is so much better than that, right? So when he accepts you as his child, he does so knowing everything that you would ever do. And so when something comes up, nothing's ever going to come up that's going to make him say, oh, whoops, you know, I forgot to pay for that one on the cross. Oh, 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 whoops, that was too big for me to pay for. Right? No. The Satan's going to tell you it was too big. Satan's going to tell you God forgot about that one on the cross. He's going to tell you that that's just too much. Don't even bother trying to get up again. Why? Because Satan wants you to stay on the ground. And if you stay on the ground and you refuse to get back up, how can God save you? But if we trust in him and his love and his grace for us, we will get back up and he will save us. See, he already paid the price. But does that mean that we're automatically forgiven? Well, no. Grace, again, provides for the forgiveness, but faith complies with the conditions and accepts that forgiveness, right? And, and there's confession, there's repentance, and so on that goes along with that. And I wish I had more time to go into that um, because it's a part that many of us skip over, right? But it's faith in Christ that his sacrifice is for me and is sufficient for my sin that, that enters into that divine exchange of life for life. And I am justified. I get the life of Christ. And when heaven looks at me, they see Jesus. Oh, praise God. And one of the functions of forgiveness is to allow us to enter back into relationship. And so the cross reconciles relationship. So um, can we give first or do we have to take first? You have to take first because you can't give what you don't have, right? So we have, we must come and take first in order to give. So let's look at this heart that God created us with, within the context of real love. Not human love that we talked about last time. But let's look at it in the context of divine love. You see this new heart, it still has gains and losses. It still goes after the gain. It always avoids the loss. It does have expectations, Right? The new heart still has expectations too. 
But now operating under divine love, it's entirely different. You see, Satan cannot create anything new. All he can do is rearrange what God has put there. And, and divine love in a creature functions like this. You take in order to give, right? Just like a stream coming through a property, it must first take of the stream in order to give it out the other side, right? So we take in order to give. Well, Satan just turned love around and said, oh, you give in order to take. You give in order to receive. That's human love. He just took it and turned it backwards. But backwards doesn't work. <clears throat> backwards doesn't work. So when we take to give, it's no longer an investment. It's a, it's a gift, right? And a gift comes without strings attached. And if my love is taking in order to give, then what is my gain? My gain is to give. And the more I give, the more gain that I have. And the gain comes in the giving, not in what I receive from having given. <clears throat> For example, uh, let's say that there's this huge store that has been built uh, close to you and it has everything possible that you could find. It's got cars, it's got housing supplies, it's got groceries, it's got everything, right? And you don't have to go to any other store and it's so big, it has such buying power, you can, you can it's got great prices as well. And so you go there and you're shopping and you get all this stuff and you tell everybody about it and it's really cool. One day you're at the counter, you're at checkout and they're going the bleep, bleep, bleep and you're doing this thing. <sighs> Right, and uh, and the manager walks up to you and says, "Well, uh, it looks like you you forgot your your wallet or something." And so, yeah, I'm sorry. Is it okay? Can I put the card aside and you know and go run home and grab it and come back and and pay for the stuff? And he says, "No, don't worry about it." Hands you a store card and says, "Here, you can use this anytime you need to." And then he grabs it and he hands it to the clerk. Clerk swipes it, gives you the receipt, and uh, and you know you're ready to go. And you're like, Wow. You turn to thank him, and he's already gone taking care of somebody else. And, and uh, <clears throat> you know, that was really weird. And so you come back, and you know you do some more shopping. And later sometime, you, you forget your wallet again, but you actually had the card with you. And so you look at it, and you're like, um, don't know if I should, but don't have my cash. And so you, you get, hand it to the clerk. They swipe the card. Works. Give you a receipt. And you've got your stuff. And you're like, whoa. And then another day you're there and you have your credit card and you have the card. The store card. And you're looking at it and you're going, hmm. Do you use the store card? <clears throat> and it works. And, uh, you know, you're walking out and it, you get a side glance and the and the, the, the manager's there, and he gives you kind of like this knowing smile, you know, of approval. And you're like, whoa, this is weird. And, uh, <clears throat> you know, some things happen and whatever. One day you're going, and you stop at a red light, and there's, there's a woman that's begging off on the side. And she has a, got a cardboard sign saying, you know, need help, uh, God bless, 
thank you, you know, whatever. And, uh, <clears throat> and so you notice her, and you, just briefly, because then you try not to get eye contact, because then that creates all sorts of movement on their part towards your vehicle. And, uh, and <clears throat> so, you know, but then you, th- you remember the card, and you go, oh, okay, yeah. And so you roll down the window, you invite, you know, you call her over, it's a long red light, and, and you, you, you tell her, you know, I can take you shopping. I get whatever you need, you know? And, and, and so she agrees, gets in the vehicle, you guys go back to the store. And you tell her, go, you know, and, and the way you learn that her husband had come down ill with something and, and they didn't have insurance and they lost the house and all of this stuff. She has three children and, and, and she just has not found any way of getting back on her feet. And so they're living in the shelter downtown and, and uh, the kids are still going to daycare and school, but she's panhandling just to try to, you know, make some money to try to get something together for her family. And, uh, and so, you know, you tell her, well, hey, let's get some stuff for the kids and whatever. She's, you're telling her to get whatever, and she's being modest. She doesn't want to presume upon your generosity. And, uh, <clears throat> and so, you, you know, you encourage her to, to do whatever. So you buy stuff, you go back to the shelter, and, and she's very grateful and so on. And, and you go on, but you can't get, you can't get her off your mind. You keep thinking about her and everything, and, and eventually you find yourself back at the store, and you're wandering around, and you find out that they have a real estate department. Like, ooh. So you go step in there, and you start looking around, and what they have, and you, you, you find that they've got this nice two-story home on the end of a cul-de-sac somewhere, and with a basement, and, you know, and, and, and whatever, and you're like, oh, that would be really great for her. And you think about the card, and you're like... Oh, how much would that cost? And, and uh, so you get the, you know, and then you tell them what you're thinking. And they're like, well, yeah, we can do it and we can get it titled in your name and everything like that. And then when she, you know, you can come in and get her and so on and, and we can transfer it all over into hers and it would be fine. Oh, awesome. And, and we can insure it too through the, you know, through the store. And, and how is she going to get back and forth? She needs a vehicle. Well, the auto department's over there. Oh, so you go, you know, you wander over there and, and you find a nice, you know, minivan with leather seats because she's got kids. They're going to spill stuff all over. So, you know, leather seats, so you can wipe it up and, and, uh, and so on. And you get that and you can insure it through there and you pay for all of it with a card. But, but then it's going to be an empty home. So you got to furnish the thing. And so they have a decorating department, and so you go over there, you talk to the associate, and she's, you know, tell her what's going on. She's like, oh, yeah, let me meet you down at the home, and we'll do a walkthrough and, you know, decide everything that needs to be there. And so you go down there, and you meet with her, and you walk through the home. She's like, oh, you need a floor mat here, and you need pictures on the walls there, and you need this, you know, this furniture over here, and you're going to need all of these dishes, and you said she's got these children this age. How about a playground in the backyard? Oh, yeah you know and let's do the boys bed set this way and we'll do the girls bed set over here you know and, and whatever and, and this kind of appliances because they can hang all over it and not break it and, and so on so you get everything and you go back to the store and you pay for it with the card and, uh, and everything comes and it starts getting assembled and everything and, and one day you travel back to the, to the shelter and you find her there the kids are actually with her this time and you tell her hey let's go shopping I'll take you shopping again so she goes with the kids. Kids are a little bit more eager to shop than she is. And, you know, and anyways, you buy stuff and you, you throw them in the car and then you head back a different way. And she asks, are we going to your home? Well, no, not really. Um, 
Do you like this neighborhood? Yeah, it looks like a nice neighborhood, safe neighborhood. And you turn around a corner and you come down towards the end of a cul-de-sac and, and there's this house there with a big red ribbon on the front and a minivan with a big ribbon on the top of it and, and you pull right in front of that and you turn to her and you say, this is yours. She's like, what do you mean? Well, I got this for you. And you hand her the keys. Here's the house key and here's the, here's the key to the car. I got them for you. You need a home. You need a car, right? Ah, and she just breaks down crying. And uh, the kids are wondering what's going on with mom. And and she comes out and click, click, and the doors, you know, (laughs) slide back on on the minivan. The kids are, you know, shuffling through and whatever. And then they go up to the front door. And she just, she, she's in a mixture of laughing and crying while she's going through the different rooms. Kids come through the front door. They look through the glass door in the back and they see the, 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 the playground and, you know, they're just out there and sliding and playing and whatever. And she's just, she's just overwhelmed. There was a gain in taking her shopping and getting her some goods. But there is so much greater gain in getting her the house and the car. But how much did it cost you? Zero. Zero? You used the store card, right? It costs you nothing to give it away because you took everything simply to give it away. It wasn't yours. But there is a joy, there is life that comes in the giving. And the more you can give, the more gain that you have. Now what is loss? Loss is to keep it to yourself. Loss is to withhold for self-sake. Now, there might be withholding for their sake, right? Because of their selfishness or their situation, and if you just gave, 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 they would take advantage of that, and and it would just worsen the situation. And so there can be a withholding for their sake, for their good. But to withhold or to keep for my sake, I would enter into loss. And when I enter into loss, I am automatically back in the old heart. Automatically back there. John 12, 25, Jesus tells us, he who loves his life will lose it, and he who hates his life in this world will keep it for life eternal. You want to know that we're crazy? Here's one evidence of it. In this world, how do you keep something? You hold on to it. You protect it. You keep others away from it. You put it between bars. You, you stick it in a bank. You throw it in a, in a safe. You do other things like that. You bury it in the ground. You do something in order to hold on to the thing. But God is telling us that in reality, not here in this world, but in reality, if you want to keep something, what do you have to do? Give it away. Because the moment that you hold on to it, you lose it. The moment you hold on to it, you lose it. It's just absolutely backwards from our thinking because our thinking is absolutely backwards. You want another evidence that we're crazy and that everything is upside down? Jesus told us it is more blessed to give than to receive. So if you go out the front door, I'll pay you $1,000. But if you go out the back door, you pay $1,000. Which door are you going to go out? 
But he said it's more blessed to give than to receive. But we in our selfish human hearts will always choose receiving over giving. We'll always choose receiving over giving because we're upside down. We're upside down, right? We're told that God makes his son to rise on the evil and on the good and sends rain on the just and on the unjust. God will not lose. (laughs) And so he will not withhold his love from us, right? He won't. And it doesn't matter what we're like. He sends it anyways. The law of self-sacrifice is the law of self-preservation. The husband preserves his grain by casting it away. So in human life, to give is to live. The life that will be preserved is the life that is freely given in service to God and man. Those who for Christ's sake sacrifice their life in this world will keep it unto life eternal. This new heart... Do you need acceptance? Anybody need acceptance? Yeah, absolutely. God created us with that need. So you go to God and you take that acceptance because he's the source of it. You want acceptance to remain yours, what must you do? Give it away. For the moment that you hold on to it and you reject others, you lose it. That's the divine law, right? You need forgiveness, Absolutely. So you go to God and you take all the forgiveness you need because he has it all. He's the source of it. But you want forgiveness to remain yours, what must you do? Give it away. Right? For the moment that you withhold that forgiveness from others, guess what? You lose it. It's just a divine law. Right? It's just a divine law. So when Jesus said in Matthew 6.15, but if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses, what Jesus was not saying is that when you're an angry ogre and whatever and you don't forgive somebody else, then God's going to be a bigger, angrier ogre and not forgive you. That's what he's not saying. What is he saying? He is saying that it's just a divine law that if you withhold it, if you hold on to it, you lose it. You lose it. It's just, it's like jumping off a bridge. Gravity will function, right? You won't fall up, you'll fall down. And this heart remembers it's not mine. It's not mine. I don't have it, it's not my possession. I can't produce it, I'm not the creator. I am not my own to do whatever I want to with me. Just like the UPS delivery guy that delivers a package that's not their own, everyone who lives in this heart does not take things personally because it's not about us. It's not about us. right? Because it's not my possession. I don't have anything that I create of my own. It's not even my love. I don't have love that I create. It's something I need, and so I must take it. But when I take it, I do so that I might hoard it to myself? No, that I might give it away. That's right. And in the giving away comes the joy and the life and and so on. Oh, I don't have time to go on the relationship. But anyways, relationships would be entirely different. I'd love to describe it, but I don't have time. But relationships would be entirely different if we were living by this new heart because there would be no selfishness we wouldn't turn the other person into an idol. We would come and we would take from God and we would give to the other. 
And, and if the other had to go on a mission trip for, for you know, a year or a couple of years or something like that, we wouldn't be sitting back at home going, oh, I can't believe that they're not here, and oh, I miss them so much, and oh, this and that and the other thing. No, because we already have our source. Everywhere we go, we have our source. We can eat from his buffet table, and we can be full. And when they return, we can have the joy of giving, you know? And, and, and it's not about the taking, it's about the giving, right? Taking from him, but giving to the others. The purpose for other relationships in this planet is to give what we have taken from God. The taking comes vertically, the giving comes horizontally, right? And there are expectations in this new heart. There are. I would expect my wife to love me even functioning from the new heart. But not for my sake. I would expect her to love me for her sake. Because I know that it would be for her good, it would be for her joy, it would be for her gain to give. And if she withheld that, it would hurt her. And I don't want her to hurt. I want her to gain. And so I expect for her to love me for her sake. But if she didn't, I wouldn't hurt for myself because I'm not expecting it for myself. I would hurt for her because my, my purpose is for her good and for her gain, right? That's entering in the life of Jesus. Who was the perfect example of this heart? Jesus. Did Jesus believe that he possessed things? No. He said, foxes have holes, the birds of the air have nests, but the Son of Man has nowhere to lay his head. Right? He didn't believe that he possessed it. Did, did he produce a whole lot on his own? No. He said, I can of myself do nothing. It's incredible what you can do when you can't do anything. Right? It's, it's just how backwards we are and how upside down we are. When we think we can do it, we think we can accomplish it, but the reality is that the only way we're going to accomplish it is when we realize we can't do it. And so we must trust and depend, right? Uh, Jesus, did he think that he was his own to do whatever he wanted to with him? No, he said, most assuredly I say to you, the son can do nothing of himself but what he sees the father do for whatever he does, the son does in like manner. So Jesus was the perfect example of his heart. He was the perfect UPS delivery guy. He never took anything personally because he was only taking from his father. He was taking from the only source that there really is and he was coming to give to everyone around him regardless of what they were like and who, how they responded and so on and so forth. It was an agape love, right? <clears throat> now how did that heart respond in bad circumstances? Because you see, selfishness and real love can look very similar when things are going well, right? Selfishness and real love can look very similar when things are, are, are going well. But when chaos hits, that's when the manifestation between the two becomes very distinct. Like the present gets thrown on the ground and smashed, how you respond to that situation tells you which love you have. If you take it personally and you're hurt and you're upset and you're angry or other things like that, you know it's selfishness that is the motivation behind the gift and the giving. 
But if you don't take it personally, if you're curious, if you hurt for them, and so on and so forth, then you know you're coming from a selfless standpoint. And so the trial and the test reveals to us how we respond in the test and trial reveals to us what's in the heart. And so Jesus, let's see what happened to him in the test and the trial. Jesus did not contend for his rights. Often his work was made unnecessarily severe. Oh. Because he was willing and uncomplaining. Yet he did not fail nor become discouraged. He lived above these difficulties as if in the light of God's countenance. He did not retaliate when roughly used but bore insult patiently. That's how the new heart operates under test and trial. In the heart of Christ where reigned perfect harmony with God, there was perfect peace. He was never elated by applause. Why? Because he wasn't eating off of other people's buffet. Nor dejected by censure. Why? Because he wasn't eating off of their buffet. <clears throat> or disappointment. Amid the greatest opposition and the most cruel treatment, he was still of good courage. Why? He was eating off of God's buffet. Right? He was now in the shadow of the cross and the pain was torturing his heart. He knew that he would be deserted in the hour of his betrayal. He knew that by the most humiliating process to which criminals were subjected, he would be put to death. He knew the ingratitude and cruelty of those he had come to save. He knew how great the sacrifice that he must make and for how many it would be in vain. Knowing all that was before him, he might naturally have been overwhelmed with the thought of his own humiliation and suffering. You think, well, yeah, naturally. But, but he looked upon the twelve who had been with him as his own and who after his shame and sorrow and painful usage were over would be left to struggle in the world. His thoughts of what he himself must suffer were ever connected with his disciples. He did not think of himself. His care for them was uppermost in his mind. He had a selfless love from beginning to end. Christ never murmured, never uttered discontent, displeasure, or resentment. He was never disheartened, discouraged, ruffled, or fretted. He was patient, calm, and self-possessed under the most exciting and trying circumstances. All his works were performed with a quiet dignity and ease, whatever commotion was around him. Applause did not elate him. He feared not the threats of his enemies. He moved amid the world of excitement, of violence and crime as the sun moves above the clouds. Human passions and commotions and trials were beneath him. He sailed like the sun above them all, yet he was not indifferent to the woes of men. His heart was ever touched with the sufferings and necessities of his brethren as though he himself was the one afflicted. He had a calm inward joy, a peace which was serene. His will was ever swallowed up in the will of his father, not my will, but thine be done, was heard from his pale and quivering lips. Oh, beautiful. This is what the new heart looks like. This is how it acts. This is how it responds. This is the life of Jesus. <clears throat> what about us? Christ did not fail, neither was he discouraged, and his followers are to manifest a faith of the same enduring nature. There it is a spare of nothing and a hope for everything. If the works of the ambassadors of Christ are wrought in God, they will not be elated by praise from human lips, neither will they be depressed because they think they are not appreciated. Why? Because they're not eating from others' buffet. They're eating from the Father's buffet. 
If you had the Spirit of Christ, you would not notice slights and make much of fancied injuries. Hmm. It is the love of self that destroys our peace. While self is all alive, we stand ready continually to guard it from mortification and insult. But when we are dead and our life is hid with Christ in God, we shall not take neglects or slights to heart. We shall be deaf to reproach and blind to scorn and insult. Mm, Beautiful. This new heart recognizes that I am a creature of God's. I am a creation of his. The old heart believes that I'm God, but the new one realizes that I'm a creature. I am a child of God. And that is the true identity that you and I must have. That's the one that must be replaced with that old one of of thinking that we are God. And when we enter into this new identity, when we enter into this new heart, we are set free. Because no longer are we a slave to others. No longer are we dependent upon what they say and what they do and how they say it and how they do it. No longer are we dependent upon those old gains and losses in that old heart of not receiving, not receiving enough or losing our treasure and having it taken away. We're no longer subjected to that because it's no longer even part of the equation. And we are in control because it's our choice, our decision whether we gain or whether we keep, I mean whether we give or whether we keep in this new heart. And, and so we are the ones that are in charge of our gains or our losses, whereas in the old heart it's always others that are in charge of our gains and losses. Everything that was upside down becomes right side up in the new heart. And this is how God created us in the first place. This is what Adam and Eve lost in the Garden of Eden. And the old heart is what every one of us have inherited ever since that time. But God did not leave us in a situation where we would stay stuck in the old heart. He died with that old heart that he might in himself put it to death on the cross. That you and I, as we enter into that experience of the cross, the old heart might die too because of Christ and we might be resurrected to the new heart the new heart the new life remember Ezekiel 36 26 and 27 I will give you a new heart and put a new spirit within you I will take the old heart out of your flesh and give you a heart of flesh Right? And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to walk in my statutes and you will keep my judgments and do them. It's a new heart that God desires for us and he's the only one that can give it to us. We cannot deserve it. We cannot earn it. All we can do is need it and ask for it. So if you need it and you want it, would you ask for it with me now? Let's pray. Dear Heavenly Father, <laughs> oh, what a beautiful picture of the love of God that you would enter into the hell of our lives and take our place to set us free. And Lord, that, that you would offer to us a new heart that sets us free from so, so much more than we ever thought we could be set free from. 
Lord, you said ask and it will be given to you. Seek and you will find. Knock and it will be opened to you. Lord, you said that he who promised is faithful. You said that you cannot lie. And you promised a new heart. And we are asking for it. That new heart of love that we see in the life of Jesus. And so, Lord, since you cannot lie and we know it's your will, we thank you for the gift. And, Lord, may we enter into the joy of taking everything we need from you and giving it away more and more. And may that be our life. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. This media was brought to you by Audioverse a website dedicated to spreading God's word through free sermon audio and much more. If you would like to know more about Audioverse, or if you would like to listen to more sermons, please visit www.audioverse.org.